0: You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R.
1: Now, before we continue with the show, I wanted to dedicate today's issue of Smart Arts to the late, great John Pinder, who passed away early yesterday. Now, uh, John Pinder was one of those people who's not necessarily especially well known outside his circle of friends and family and colleagues but without him Melbourne's cultural landscape would be completely different Uh, Pinder was responsible for the uh, establishment of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, he was uh, a co-founder of Circus Oz, he opened the last laugh theatre, restaurant and zoo in Melbourne, he previously owned the Flying Trapeze Cafe, credited as being Australia's first comedy cabaret venue. He was a... A powerhouse of creative energy and ideas, standing at the back of, the, of comedy rooms laughing loudly when no one else was, and then when comedians got off stage immediately challenging them to do better. Uh, so without John Pinder, Melbourne's cultural landscape, and indeed the Australian cultural landscape, would be radically different, uh, and I suspect much less entertaining, certainly much less funny. So uh, after struggling with cancer, uh, John Pinder passed away early yesterday uh and as i said i wanted to dedicate today's show to him uh because he really was a uh, a powerhouse uh in terms of the uh, the energy that he gave to this city and to creative landscapes around the country so vale john pinder and thank you for all your work Covering Cole Porter, that was the James Sherlock trio from the album Domestic Arts, out through Jazz Head Recordings, the track You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To. Why are we playing a bit of jazz at this hour of the morning? Well, because we're about to find out what's going on with the Melbourne International Jazz Festival, which is kicking off today, running through until the 7th of June, taking over the city with a, a program of iconic jazz artists, local performances, jazz film screenings at Acme Work workshops, uh, free events and more. Joining us to tell us all about the festival is its artistic director, Michael Tortoni. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Thanks for having me on. So, to begin with, be, let's just take a step back for a moment. Why do you love jazz? Because uh, you've been the artistic director of the festival for five years or so. You've been involved with Bennett's Lane Jazz Club, an iconic Melbourne venue, which sadly we are soon to see to, to wave farewell to. But why jazz? What is it about this particular genre of music, or genres really, that uh, has so fascinated you for so long?
2: Well, you know, I, I think jazz is the most important art form. Of the 21st century, uh, and uh, and I guess um, you know my experience tends to support that. Um, you know, I've been involved in a number of different genres. When I was a teenager, I was in a rock band called Taste, which had a few hits. Then I went to uh, VCA and graduated through the classical stream at, at, at VCA. While I was there, <coughs> excuse me, while I was there, um, Brian Brown had started the jazz school. And, uh, and I used to sit in after orchestral rehearsal and, um, and I also played in, in, in show bands as well, you know, to make a living as a musician. Um, and, uh, I was well aware of jazz throughout, even as a teenager. Um, but I guess, uh, being at college confirmed what I could see around me that Melbourne had this incredible pool of talent living here, a bit like New York really. And, um... And really, once I was absorbed by jazz, you know, I fell in love with jazz and the improvisational aspect of it. But what I also realised, that it was uh, a music that tended to uh, take in everything in its path, Uh, you know, politics, fashion, trends, absorb everything in its path, then uh, evolve and then inform again. So uh, for me, it's a very current and informing music. Um, So... uh, Uh, and really it becomes a lifestyle more than just playing it. Well, it's certainly for me. I, I mean, I discovered my father used to listen to jazz, but
1: I was never a fan of jazz as a teenager. But then, when I started reading Kerouac and the like in in my early twenties, I was like, I need a soundtrack of bebop to accompany these books while I read them, <laughs> uh, and slowly discovered uh, jazz, I guess, in that way, and then discovered how alive jazz is as an art form. Oh, the fact that it continues to adapt and evolve and grow. So you can be a jazz purist, or you can listen to much more contemporary jazz. You can find it influences everywhere uh in uh the impact of jazz on art for
2: example is something that continues to fascinate me look i could be in paris i could be some remote corner of the world and i, prob- I could probably you know step onto a stage in some sort of club and uh, not speak the language but play music um and that's what jazz can do and it's, it's the improvisational aspect that you know it's really really re- reflects the individuality of, of the musician Uh, And that's something that jazz, you know, it's very open and, and, you know, and very inclusive. Uh, Which must make programming
1: a festival like the Melbourne International Jazz Festival something of a challenge when it is that open and it is that inclusive. And you've got a world of artists and musicians to draw upon and favours
2: to call in and so forth. Well, and the boundaries get very broad, Uh, you know. it's, it's hard to define where jazz starts and stops. So it, it, I guess after years of doing this and, you know, having been involved in ben, ben Slave 25 years programming in that club, I guess my my the bottom line is as long as it's great music, it, it, it's fine by me so for this year's melbourne
1: international jazz festival which as we said kicks off today and runs through until the 7th of june at a range of venues uh, across melbourne mm. we've got uh, 281 australian artists 67 international artists and various programming streams uh, covering workshops free events uh, jazz out west jazz on film uh, and much much more where do you begin with programming something like this do you do you first say okay let's start with kind of an icon let's get herbie hancock for example let's secure that and do you build a program around something like that
2: how does it grow well I, look every year i start with a wish list and uh, and then we end up with what we end up you know and, and this year it's been incredible because much of the wish list has been realized and you mentioned herbie hancock and um i was in new york last year and we were toying with the idea of of, of bringing him to melbourne and um and it happened. Uh, it happened. And it's incredible because it, it, this is the first time after 37 years they've actually cl- collaborated. And um, and uh, they're on a historic world tour, uh, you know, an absolute trailblazers for decades and, and uh, jazz royalty. So uh, that's the opening concert tonight at Hamer Hall and the second one on Tuesday. But unfortunately, they both sold out. <laughs> um, but there are many other uh, concerts that, that, that uh, your audience can come and see and listen to now given that you're opening with those guys uh and then the uh,
1: the closing night concert is celebrating the spirit of jazz from new orleans which is really where jazz was born
2: well it is and uh you know um the new orleans jazz orchestra uh and its leader irvin mayfield um who is a uh, an extraordinary extraordinary trumpeter by, by the way um uh, uh um an educator and uh, an advocate for New Orleans as the birthplace of jazz. Uh, he'll be leading his 13-piece orchestra um, and uh, a, a, and featuring Dee Dee Bridgewater. Uh, that should be another amazing concert at Hamer Hall. Now, is there a distinctly
1: Australian jazz idiom or style? If you put on... If I put, play a range of CDs without telling you who the artists are, can you say that's the Australian sound, that's the Australian
2: musicians? I think so. I, I think so. Um, I, I've... Um, I've, you know, Mel Stanley uh, has got a huge library of live recordings at of, of, of Bennett's Lane, and uh, often I've been in the car and I've been able to tell the sound of the piano in the club, and uh, which is quite extraordinary, I think, to my, even to myself. Um, but there, uh, there is, a, I think, a distinctly Australian sound. Um, I'm not sure whether it's my imagination or it's real, but it, I, I think I can tell. What is that sound? Can you define it in some way? Well, it's kind of I guess it's coloured by because know the, I know the musicians um, a kind of laric l- laric how do you pronounce that word Laricanism. that's it um, in the music uh, and um it it comes through in their playing, I think. Talk to
1: us about some of the Australian artists who are in the Melbourne International Jazz Festival program this year. I know one of the events that has caught my eye, for example, is a an exploration of jazz, but
2: incorporating Indigenous uh, elements as well. Yes, th- that, that's an, uh, quite an incredible collaboration. It's uh, the Monash Art Ensemble, uh, led by Paul Grabowski, uh, the Australian Art Orchestra, led by Peter Knight, and the Wagaluk group uh, from South East Arnhem Land. Um, Paul Grabowski has written a new work uh, for that collaboration. Um, So that'll be quite an exciting event, actually.
1: Now, uh, obviously, just a short time ago, we were listening to a little bit of Australian jazz, the James Sherlock trio, uh, who are playing in the festival as well,
2: I believe. Yes, yes. James is an absolute beautiful guitarist, Uh, one of my favourite, actually. Um, Yes, so... uh, there are a number of club sessions actually where you can see smaller tr- uh, ensembles um, across bennett's lane uptown jazz cafe and uh, and dizzy's jazz cafe um and, and of course at bennett's lane there are also jam sessions at midnight or about 11 o'clock they start at, every night running right through and often uh in those jam sessions the internationals are there as well and uh They get up to all sorts of things. I can imagine uh, it could be a a,
1: a bit of a crowd for some of those sessions, especially (laughs) in light of the fact that Bennett's Lane will sadly be closing soon after the festival.
2: Yes, yes. Um, But but you have to watch that space. Uh, (laughs) There are plans for the future. Excellent. Now, for people who are perhaps jazz
1: novices mm-hmm. and they know that the Melbourne International Jazz Festival is on, but they don't know where to start, how? what would you suggest to them in terms of navigating through the program? Where is a good place to dip their toe into the water or to experiment? Should they turn up to a jam session, for example, and just see jazz being improvised before their eyes and before their ears, or should they start elsewhere?
2: They should definitely do that, but I mean, obviously, the website com, but um and I think with this sort of festival, uh, I, I think what's in the program is incredible across the board. I, I think they should take some chances and be adventurous. Um, but, um, you know, D.D. Uh, Bridgewater would be a great concert to dip your toe into. Um, there's another, uh, a great Italian pianist, uh, Stefano Bellani, and, um, and a virtuoso bandolin player, Hamilton D. Holanda, who I had the good fortune of seeing in Newport last year. Absolutely mesmerising. In fact, if there's one concert that I wouldn't miss, it's those two musicians. Quite extraordinary.
1: Uh, There's also Free Jazz at Federation Square. That's right. That's tomorrow. That's tomorrow. uh, Kicking off from 3pm and running through until 6.30pm. And the weather's going to be good, so they can all come out. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, all these events and more, com is the website to go. There's a, a big list of free events. If uh, money is an option for you, as it is for many of us, uh, then maybe start with some of those free events or explore the program, dip your toe into the water. As we've said, there's, uh, if you're a dedicated jazz fan, you've probably already booked well in advance, given that the festival is opening tonight. If you're more uh, more of a novice or just more curious about what's on at the Melbourne international jazz festival some of those free events are definitely a place to start and as we've said there's also then the associated
2: film program at acme and other events uh, workshops well. com- in conversation they're all free so uh, yeah there's a lot to explore there
1: Now, we uh, did mention Herbie Hancock earlier, who is one of the the special guests at the festival this year. I thought we might go out on uh, uh, a bit of Herbie from the uh, the soundtrack of the film Round Midnight, which is, to my mind, the quintessential jazz film. Absolutely. So uh, this is Herbie Hancock with Round Midnight. But as we said, the uh, Melbourne International Jazz Festival kicking off from today, running through until the 7th of June. More information at melbournejazz.com. We've been chatting with its artistic director, Michael Tortoni. Michael, thank you very much. Much for joining us. Thanks Richard. You're tuned to Triple R. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts taking you through until midday today. Anyway, it's time for us to have an art attack. <laughs>
3: Art... Attack, 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 attack. Art
1: Attack is our fortnightly visual art review segment and Ty Snaith joins us in the studio today. How good morning, it? good morning. Very different studio to the one you're used to, I'm sure. But Yeah, uh,
0: mine's a mess at the moment, but a good mess. That's you know? nice to know. Yeah.
1: So you've been off to see a new work by Melbourne-based artist Brooke Andrew, which is on uh, at the Ian Potter and challenging some, some Anzac myths.
0: Yeah, and we should say before, because sometimes people get confused with the whole Double Ian Potter thing now, but it's at the Melbourne Uni Ian Potter, so up at the top of Swanson Street. The, the Ian Potter Museum. That's right. Yes. And it's on until the 9th of August, so you've got a little while to go and see it. And I urge everyone to, um, if you listen to this and think, oh, that's interesting, go and see it. It's free. Anyone can go in. It's called Sanctuary, Sanctuary. I guess it's the Sanctuary, Tombs of the Outcasts. Um, and it is, as you mentioned, uh, loosely around the ANZAC kind of uh, commemoration series of or suite of things that are happening um, that are actually funded by a grant by the Commonwealth Government through the ANZAC Centenary arts and culture fund in the public grants program so it is a lot of money was poured into this public arts arts grants program through the government like a hundred million dollars or something and I'd been hearing this figure and thinking "Mm, that's a lot of money and I'm not sure that we need that much money to celebrate the um, what happened in Gallipoli but now that I've seen this show I must say this is a good use of that money. Uh, it's it's a really interesting lateral look at, I guess the the way that war. Um, affects a society, but in, from, you know, put together by an artist and obviously by an artist, not by an historian or a c- curator. It's, it's basically given Brooke Andrew free reign to use any object or book or photograph or anything from the Melbourne Uni collection. So he's had access to the university art collection, um, the archives, the maps, the rare books collection, zoology collection, so specimens, all that kind of things, the, the Baylew Library print collection, um, which is just, I mean, the thought of that as an artist is pretty... It's like Alice in Wonderland, you know? <laughs> Go in and
1: choose whatever you want. Certainly a, a lot to draw from. It is. Which, so... which would suggest then that what, if anything, it's what it's not going to be is mm. just a, stra- a very straightforward, forensic look at yeah. Gallipoli through contemporary eyes.
0: No, it's not. And if anything, it's kind of using that, I would say, as a as a little bit of a segue to look at the broader... Idea of sort of post colonial Australian culture. Um and there is, you know, that I, I kept thinking about that that phrase, you know, that World War I was the war to end all wars. And I think what Brooke Andrews done here that's really interesting is really savvy, you know, in a very savvy way pointed out that it most definitely did not end all wars. And in fact, that we are very much still part of war today. And he's built this as part of the show. Um, I must say the exhibition design is incredible. There's this one bit that you don't actually see on first impression. So you walk into the space and it's It's a um, wall that comes from the ceiling down rather than from the floor up. So it sort of is half of the space of the the height of the room. It goes to about chest height from the ceiling down. And you realise that the room seems smaller than normal and then you sort of have to duck into this long, narrow... It's almost like a a tomb itself. It's black. The whole space is painted black. And it's lit by just sort of purple and red neons. And it has a shelf, a, a black shelf along one wall. And at the beginning of the show there was just a couple of photographs on there, and then um, evidently um, Brooke brings in a picture every day, and these photographs are of people in current wars. So I guess that the idea of this part of the show is that we're reminded that every day there is a person participating in a war that, you know, we're we're part of, that we're putting our name to as Australians. Um, So that part is quite an interesting take on a museum type show, you know, something that evolves over time. There's also a lot of other under stories that I found really, really good to see on public display. So ideas of you know Indigenous Australians that were part of the First World War. So diggers that I know there's a, there's a few dialogues happening around this that you know that weren't weren't identified or, or forgotten or um, but that were very much part of that.
1: Which references some, uh, another work that's actually been supported previously by the ANZAC uh, Centenary Fund, which as you said mm. it's 140 million over mm. over four years I think for various ANZAC Centenary initiatives but Black Diggers, the Queensland Theatre mm. Company production which toured recently, again looking at, at some of those lost stories, stories and forgotten stories of Indigenous uh, men who uh, was incredibly badly treated in Australia at the time given mm. how uh, how rife racism was at the time mm. uh, and, and state-sanctioned and, and controlled racism went off fort and then came back and didn't get soldier settlements like the white fellas yeah. did suddenly went back to being mistreated um, it, It's yeah. I think it's important that... Uh, Brooke Andrew is also in, um, reminding us of some of these stories here through, through art mm. rather than through theatre.
0: Yeah, and I think, I mean, as an artist myself, the biggest thing of this show is that it is really powerful to ask and, an artist to put together a museum-type show because you do get a really different reading. It's 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 very, I guess, obtuse is one way to put it. It's not spelled out for the viewer, which I really enjoy. You know, there's a little blurb at the start, but there's nothing that tells you exactly what each thing is or what it's doing. You need to use your brain, which is, it's really refreshing to see that. Um, there's also a lot of contemporary works in there that he's kind of added to, like um, where he's sort of found images in fashion magazines of sort of like sailor-esque. Outfits and then put them next to images of actual, you know, navy sailors and and that sort of I guess aestheticising of of war or that sort of way that we embrace it into our culture as a as a good thing, which I'm really critical of and I you know I find it very interesting that idea of all well, the fine line these days between commemoration and celebration and i just think anzac day you know just even looking at instagram all the people baking anzac biscuits and saying oh, happy anzac day like actually not happy not you know ha- yeah.
1: <laughs> now i've um, heard the exhibition um and we should uh, just reiterate the exhibition that mm. ty is talking about uh by brooke andrew it's called sanctuary <clears throat> tombs of the outcast at the ian potter museum of art university of melbourne on until the 9th of august um i just being described to me very much as an immersive mm. exhibition.
0: It is. Like I, I sort of thought, I, mean, I shouldn't say this but I often think, I'll go in, I'll spend five minutes on my way to something and have a whiz around and, and I actually did the whiz around and then I thought, no, I have to go back in and I have to spend some time because it's what I wanted to, you know. It is immersive and I think, I must say that the, yeah, the exhibition design it does contribute to that. It's a really, really beautifully designed exhibition. Um, it makes you want to get into it. You actually have to duck in into those little internal Spaces and it's quite private, and I think viewing some of those objects for for some people could be quite full on. Um, and some of those old prints, which are hugely racist and exist and are sort of like you know prized possessions of our collections, they're, they're pretty confronting. I found them pretty confronting, and I think having that type of design where you're kind of encompassed by this black, heavy space, and it's private, you know, so you you have time and you feel like you're given time to spend with these ideas, which are pretty heavy ideas in our culture, you
1: know. It's great that he's then, I guess, by providing that that privacy and that that Mm. sense of isolation, um, tapping into, in some ways, perhaps the sense of grief, that anybody who's experienced grief knows that um, in some ways it's a shared experience, yes, but it's an intensely private personal internalized experience yeah a lot you, of the time as well so yeah. he's perhaps almost referencing that in the exhibition as well
0: I think so I think it's really sensitively done and it's also it's also a little bit um, irreverent in some places which is important and a little bit playful in some places and it also for me looks at just the oddball oddball society that we are as Australians like it's bloody weird place this place you know (laughs) and there's a few objects that he's collected and the way that he's arranged them together you know this this baby well actually it's a dugong fetus that's in formaldehyde and it is the most eerie looking bizarre thing and just placed amongst the other artifacts it does sort of make you think a lot of those decisions back then had no rhyme or reason you know and i just think racism has kind of no rhyme or reason and there's a lot of issues i guess in our culture that still are being ironed out or recognised or dug up and, you know, teased out and and fixed that had no reason to happen when they did. And I I think he looks at this in a very complex and interesting way.
1: The exhibition is on now until the 9th of August at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne. It's basically right uh, up at the tram terminus uh, at the top end of Swanson Street um, between Elgin and... Elgin and... Elgin? Elgin?
0: Elgin, I think. Elgin.
1: I should know. I've lived in Melbourne for long enough. Uh, um, Elgin and Faraday Streets, uh, and more info at www.art-melbourne.unimelb.edu.au, open Tuesdays to Fridays, 10 till 5, Saturdays and Sundays, midday till 5pm.
0: It's on Level 1, so there's actually a few other shows on it in Potter at the moment, but if you go up the stairs, it's on Level 1. And just briefly, I should also mention another great show that I got to, and I've forgotten the name of the show, but it's at um, Margaret Lawrence gallery at the moment it's a really I had a little look in there before I went to the protest last week for the arts funding um which I the saw you off. at yes. the dance, the angry dance, I like to call it. Um, but that the show that's at Margaret Lawrence at the moment is also fantastic. Uh,
1: that's the Margaret Lawrence Gallery at uh, the Victorian College of the Arts. That would be the melting pot, uh, right. sorry, the melting point, point. of reason. Yeah, uh,
0: has some excellent artists in there like Haney Armanius, um Susan Jacobs, Ruby Sterling, Ruby. Um, you know, it's, it's curated by Mark Fury, and yeah, uh, yeah on uh, until some for a while. I think yeah I'm just trying to find the dates um.
1: Uh, until the 20th of June.
0: Yeah, it's well worth a look, particularly if you're an artist working in those mediums of, you know, object-based, um, also process-based. But it, it cuts across a lot of different eras of that type of work and beautifully curated into one, as Mark does well. But, um, yeah, well, worth a look free also and open today, I would say, as well.
1: Indeed. Uh, and so the main exhibition Ty was talking about, if you want to take some notes, Brooke Andrew was the artist. Sanctuary, Tombs of the Outcasts at the Ian Potter Museum of art at melbourne university Mm. thank you for joining us time my pleasure we'll catch you in a
0: fortnight's time thank you
1: Richard Watts, taking you through till midday today here on Smart Arts on R 102.7 on your FM dial, and streaming around the planet at rrr.org.au. It's time for us to talk independent theatre. Home Invasion is a new production that opened last night at La Mama Theatre in Faraday Street in Carlton. Just before we go any further, as always when we talk about shows at La Mama, I need to declare my conflict of interest. I am on the Committee of Management at La Mama. I do not benefit financially from my involvement. Home Invasion is written and directed by Christopher Bryant, who joins me in the studio now. Christopher, good morning. Hi, morning. So, um, opening night last night, how'd it go?
3: Yeah, really well. Um, It was, I feel like I'm getting old, because by the time it was like about 11 o'clock, I was like ready to go to sleep. But um, the show itself, yeah, was all really successful and good. So, uh, how have you been
1: describing Home Invasion to, to friends or family when they say, what's the new play about?
3: It sort of changes every time that I talk about it, but I suppose ostensibly it's about obsession, and um, kind of it sort of weirdly like stemmed from like obsessive elements within my own personality um, that then sort of channeled into theatre, but um. Yeah, so it's sort of about three sort of tales of a session and sort of disconnection, I suppose. Interlinked tales or separate tales that run parallel or? um yeah, inter- interlinked tales, but um that are sort of sort of separate but interlinked. That was really Yep, good. Um They're sort of, all the tales are based on real life occurrences that have um sort of obviously happened in the world. That's what real life means. Um and I sort of made them theatrical, I suppose, through that and
1: tried to intellect them what sort of occurrences uh, that Um, have happened have you turned into this
3: well one was the the tale of paula goodspeed who um was an american idol contestant in 2008 um, and she was quite mentally ill and basically was stalking paula abdul her name was actually sandra goodspeed and um began to like stalk paula abdul to the point where she was like I'm going to go on the show and audition. And she did and was not very good, not very well received. Um, so she was dressed, dressed herself up like Paul Abdul and stuff and, and got basically spurned by the person that she loved and ended up taking her in life at the front of Paul Abdul's house. Oh,
1: my God. Yeah,
3: it was very intense. And then um, the other one was the, the tale of the Long Island Lolita, which was, I can't remember, I'm trying to... I've got, I know them with their character names in my head, but they're not the same as their actual real life names. So I can't remember this woman's name, because uh, it's a girl in life. But um, they anyway, they're basically the 16 year old girl who got, became obsessed with her mechanic and um, began to crash her car repeatedly just so she could get to see the mechanic and then started having sex with the mechanic and then found out the mechanic had a wife and then visited the wife's home and shot the wife in the face. Oh, my uh, God.
1: Yeah. What is it about these stories that so fascinates you then, given that, I mean, that's just two of the three yeah. stories and I, I think we should leave the rest as a surprise. <laughs> but what is it about these stories of obsession and the, the way that people be? I guess every, every obsession begins with something quite natural and normal, such as, oh, I like this person, my mechanic is hot. How, how can I get to meet him? And slowly it starts to spiral deeper and deeper from kind of just a general interest into real obsession and into mm. madness. What is it about that spiralling progression into true obsession and, uh, obsession and dangerous obsession that, that fascinates you theatrically?
3: Um, I suppose... That's a really good question. I think it's my brain. Um, I... I don't know, I just as I said, I have a like elements of my personality quite obsessive um i so I wrote this play last year while I was at Nida, um but it wasn't my grad play i was my grad play was about the Manson family, and I just did cheering <laughs> um and i in in writing and researching this, I sort of fell into my own weird obsessive spiral of um, like on these online forums and just like to the point where I was considering like writing to Charles Manson. I found his address and everything, and then at the moment I was like, mm, actually, it's probably that's it's probably a bit too far. Um, so it's yeah, that sort of inspired me. I originally wrote the play in 2012, but I was never really satisfied with it, and so the version that's being performed now is the rewritten one that I wrote last year. Um, so I I suppose through my own obsession. Of, of falling down this weird rabbit hole, I decided that why not go back to the other play?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, having elements of obsessive behavior myself, for example, it's, I find it interesting the way that. You don't necessarily know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, the, the, my classic example, and it's a fairly minor example, but I decided I had to go out and collect every single target paperback novelization of Doctor Who that had ever <laughs> been published um, and to the point where I was ringing book, bookshops out in the suburbs and saying, I'm, somebody's told me on Facebook that you have a shelf. I'm coming out. Can you tell me what the title is? And before you know it, 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 becomes, it does become all-consuming. It's, yeah. You focus on it um, intently and uh, it, it's a strange process. So how do you capture that intensity, that spiralling madness theatrically and place that on stage beyond just a recounting of events? Yeah. How can you capture the mood of Obsession?
3: Um, well, for the character of based on the 16-year-old girl, um, she's sort of the centrepiece of the, the piece the centrepiece so face good Um, and um, there's a lot of like interviews that I had read and and seen with her in in these interviews and she's really obsessive and was still even obsessed with this woman Mary Jo who was the woman that she shot Um, and sort of there was this weird like um, yeah I suppose obsessive elements that she was talking about but, but then, also, at the same time, like convincing herself that no she hadn 't done anything, and it was fine, and like it was all fine, and she didn 't die so i didn't do anything wrong, like I just turn in the face um so for instance, there's like this recurring scene in it um between her and the character of the wife, where it 's like her imagined obsessive um confrontations between her and this woman. And it sort of ends differently. Like one time the wife shoots her, one time she shoots the wife, one time it gets all weird and midday movie and over the top and ridiculous. Um, so it's just sort of the, like, and, and, and again, like for me, it was just like, when you're like, I really like this one person, what, what could happen between like, between me and this person? How could like coffee with them go, it could go this way or this way or the other way or blah, blah, blah. So playing out
1: all of those possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. For an audience, uh, there's – obviously, if we're talking about all of this obsession and violence and, and the strange behavior that people do when they are genuinely obsessed with some <laughs> something or someone, it doesn't necessarily sound like it's going to be a comfortable night of theatre, but there's a strong element of black comedy running yeah. through the show as well.
3: Yeah. Um, I suppose that, that sort of I, – I don't find it – I find it well, – well, it's good um, – I think i find it hard to write something without comedy um just because i love comedy and especially black comedy um and so when when writing this i suppose it wasn't a conscious choice but there were just elements of again this this woman's obsession and the the one who was um the the paula goodspeed lady who who was obsessed with paul abdul like these so intense obsessions that they kind of give way to Things that are just utterly hilarious in their outlandishness. Um, so I was really interested in bringing that out. Also, because let's be honest, no one really wants to sit there for 90 minutes while someone screams at you and is like, obsession, ah, dramatic, because no one, it's not fun. <laughs> not fun at all. Uh, is there any,
1: um, any, do you have any qualms about adopting, uh, well, sorry, adapting real life people's stories to the stage in this way?
3: Um, not really. Oh, you callous monster. <laughs> um, I suppose it's, it's, it is a lot about the way that you, go to like uh approach them good words yep um the way that you approach these real life stories and for me especially with the um sandra goodspeed paul paul goodspeed she has two names um the one who um took her life is there was so much vitriol from everyone on the internet and um while researching this woman it was just all these websites that were like basically saying ha what a stupid like bitch basically yeah, she's gone she's dead who cares Ha Ha isn't really funny and i was like well no it's no that's not tragedy. funny that's actually really tragic like um so i was sort of suppose, in a weird way i was interested in kind of not redeeming her but like trying to to be like look there's this whole other side and any one of us could find ourselves in this like mental illness is a very real thing like let's look at this as opposed to just being like ha what a stupid person
1: like, and also I, I imagine for you as a playwright trying to then find um, the human character in that trying yeah. to find somebody who the audience can on one hand be horrified by but on the other hand empathise with and sympathise with as well yeah,
3: exactly It's like, and there's this woman's YouTube um, has this sort of YouTube video of, of her audition and it got so popular because people just wanted to watch it because they were like ha, ha she can't sing and she's crazy because she looks like Paul Abdul and it was sort of like well that's incredibly surface level and there's a lot more to it and like you can sort of see in this thing when when Paul Abdul says I'm sorry you're not going through to Hollywood or whatever she's she's heartbroken she's like legitimately heartbroken and it's sort of it's sort of making the choice I suppose to actually try and empathize with that even though it is very Specific. The play is
1: called Home Invasion and is on now opened last night, running through until the 7th of June at La Mama Theatre in, uh, at 205 Faraday Street, Carlton, uh, everybody's favourite intimate theatre space. Uh, you can book by going to lamama.com.au or by picking up your telephonic device and uh, dialing, what's a dial? Uh, punching <laughs> the buttons nine three four seven six one four two. that's nine three four seven six one four two or lamama.com.au if you would like to book to see Home Invasion written and directed by Christopher Bryant Christopher thank you very much for joining thank you. us and I look forward to seeing the show myself thank you hopefully i don't get obsessed by it yes <laughs> richard watts with you here on smart arts taking you through till midday today now my next guest has just joined me in the studio uh from the uk artist ryan gander who's uh, got a show called read only opening on the 4th of june at akka the australian center for contemporary art ryan good morning you all right? How are you? Oh, I'm surviving, yeah, getting through the, getting through yeah. the day. So, well, you've only just landed in the country a day or two ago.
4: Yeah, I'm a bit blurry-eyed still, to be honest. Oh, well, we'll get
1: some good Melbourne coffee into you, that yeah. should help. Um, given that, I would imagine for uh, for a few of the listeners who may not know of you, um,
4: how do you describe your, your artistic practice to people if you meet someone at a party or at a bar? That's a good question. Um, I try not to because it gets really complicated and it ends up with more difficult questions. In fact, actually, when I'm in taxis in London, you always get that question, what do you do? And I always say I'm a teacher instead of saying I'm an artist because you just dig yourself into a deeper hole if you say you're an artist. Now, the work that you're presenting
1: at um, ACCA, Juliana Engberg from ACCA has described you as a what-if artist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah? Uh, so what if you created a breeze or a wind in a still-sealed environment? Uh, what if you staged the after-scene of a dispute between the artists, Pete Mondrian, and, uh, and others? So it, do you, does that resonate for you, that notion of questioning and asking what if through your work?
4: I think it's uh, the what-if scenarios in everyone's life, but we don't think about it that much. You know, the film Back to the Future... I mean, that's like that looks at those sort of para possible situations where you make a decision and a trajectory flies off at a tangent and your life turns into something than it than it would be, you know. And I'm quite interested in that because. I mean that's fiction in a way writing different histories and and different realities Um, and it's a great way of imagining you know it's really good fun to think like that what if this happened and what if that happened
1: what if I, um, I don't know replicated an old pair of sneakers or trainers as they're called in the UK what if I replicated those in bronze
4: well there you go (laughs) you've obviously done your reading (laughs) I've done a little yeah (laughs) bit of research now that is
1: one of the works that I understand is going to be here in Melbourne it is yeah now that fascinates me because the uh, the, no- the notion of taking something as everyday and ordinary as a pair of uh, a pair of trainers, a pair of sneakers, um, and then replicating them in, in bronze or, yeah. or bronzing them can, like mothers can like might bronze their baby booties, for example, yeah, yeah. To, to keep them and, and memorialise them. Why do that to a pair of
4: everyday shoes? <laughs> Um, I was asked to do an exhibition in Willow Road, which is a National Trust property on Hampstead Heath in London, and it was of the, um, an architect called Erno Goldfinger, who's like a, a famous modernist architect from a Hungarian who built some place called Trellick Tower, this big, horrible tower block. Um, and because I was doing a show in his house, they were made specifically for his at the bottom of his staircase in his house because I felt like the natural thing to do there would be to take your shoes off as you entered the house as a mark of respect for this genius and it's sort of stuck it's like a really nice entrance point to a lot of exhibitions that i do that the artist takes their shoes off and places them by the door and goes in barefoot almost like in a a tradition of japanese you know entering the home in japan that kind of thing Mm. so that notion then of also taking something that is uh
1: well, designed to fall apart after a couple of years yeah uh, such as a pair of shoes and making it solid making it uh, yeah. into metal yeah
4: it's also like it's also this sort of contradiction between the trainer being this thing that's hyper modern isn't it you know it, it, it's only existed for the last maybe 60 70 years or something and then most things that are bronzed are quite traditional in the in the way that you read them you would think of um i don't know antiquity or something yeah ancient greek or roman yeah that's a kind of nice collision of two things in your brain that don't really work together, um, but there's also obviously there's the weight of the shoes that it's impossible to to wear them. The heavy foot, that kind of reading.
1: Now, for the work at ACCA, one of the other elements that I understand is going to be in there uh, uh, ampersand from 2012, a conveyor yeah. belt. It's so that the, the uh, view that's
4: the main work really, yeah. yeah. That's in so, a, a big space.
1: So is that a, a full-scale conveyor belt just trundling around the? It room? is,
4: but you don't see it. You don't. It's kind. Of, it's kind of weird because the space, as you know, is huge. It's like a gigantic Constellar type space. And I've just created a small room at the front with a one-meter-square window. Um, you know, much like a recording studio window, where you just see into this other place. And and what you see into is a small box. And this conveyor belt moves objects through the box. Do you, did you have the generation game here? It was a game show where you had to memorise objects that passed on TV, and they passed by a window and you had to memorise them. So it's a sort of reference to that in a way, But the objects that are on the conveyor belt are all things that have significant sociological stories. So there's a book that I've written that goes with the show, which is 66 essays about these 66 objects. And the objects are, you know, weird and wonderful and mundane and you know, funny and and sad deadly. And, there's and
1: an AK-47 there in an AK, there, I believe. Yeah,
4: there is an AK-47 in there, although it's been decommissioned, so otherwise we wouldn't have got it into the country. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: the notion of peering through at objects as they pass is, yeah. a, is a fascinating one. Again, there's that notion of impermanence that you, we were referencing with the, the shoes and the bronzes, for example. Yeah. Um, that that going kind to of discuss that? I guess that idea that plays off in the brain between watching a solid object but before you as you blink it passes out of view
4: yeah it's a weird way of navigating a show because obviously usually when you go to an exhibition you wander around a space and you confront the objects and you choose how long to spend with each object where this is a sort of the objects visit you and you're the lazy spectator and you sit there stationary and these things pass by you but you have no control over how long you spend with them which is it's a, it's a novel way of, of uh, experience to show. I always think that there's um, when you make an artwork, there should be like brain candy and there should be like body candy and eye candy. There are like maybe three elements. And the eye candy is obviously what everyone always goes for. Things are always retinal. It looks good. But I think the most interesting art is when all those three things, the physicality of it and the intellect of it and the visual, all in, in those capacities all come together.
1: Tell us about, uh, to step back for a while and, and uh, before you even began a professional career as an artist, what initially drew you to the arts? Because I know you... you trained um you studied at manchester university initially before then going on to to well
4: i applied to go to london but none of the art colleges would accept me (laughs) which so now i feel quite you know quite proud that i made it
1: so to go back even further than that why did you when and when and where did your interest in in art and becoming an artist arise
4: yeah that's one of those questions where everyone thinks that the clouds open and the light shines down and angels sing and there's this stroke of inspiration and you know and generally there isn't but it's a a a
1: long term trend in in someone's personality but
4: my dad worked in a car factory my mum was a teacher and they had nothing to do with art we didn't have art hanging in the house or i guess it more to do with storytelling and less to do with with art to be honest
1: now, um, I've been told that, uh, you, you just mentioned your dad, um, that uh, you've inherited his work ethic.
4: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> although he's retired now, so he's not got that work ethic anymore, so <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. But
1: does he still spur, does he spur you on, did he spur you on, do you think, to to, to make work constantly, to investigate, to challenge? Did, do you think you inherited that from him?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, 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 this is a huge subject, but, you know, there's, like, this stereotype of the the artist or the artisan in their garret wearing their beret, smoking a galois, and, like, in their smock, being all arty and not doing a lot of work and drinking coffee and getting drunk. And, and the reality is being an artist isn't like that whatsoever. It's just, like, a lot of work and a lot of missed time with your family and no holidays and, yeah, colossal. Colossal work and the occasional jaunt to the other side of the planet. The occasional first-class flight. <laughs> um,
1: when you were invited to present your work at uh, at ACA, uh for this exhibition, read only. Yeah. Um, what was your initial response? Was it a was it an immediate yes? Was it a, a questioning of why do they want me and will I have to make new work? What was? It? Talk us through that process.
4: Um it's interesting because when you're an artist a lot of artists just make work and they make work that looks visually the same you know variations on a theme and they do the same thing for like 50 years but I make you know every time I make something I make something different so I'll write a TV series and then um, I design trainers for Adidas and then the next thing could be I'll write a children's book and then I'll make a sculpture and then I'll do a public artwork so it's it's massively variants of, ev- of every kind really and the work that I do is based on I mean, creativity, you know, thinking, not based on style. So, but I think when you when you do a show like that, you most artists make work. But I think the way that I approach it is you make work, but then the works that you make you curate, self-curate into exhibitions, and then maybe beyond that, the most interesting bit that I've never got to yet because I'm not old enough. But is the the idea of a practice. And to look back, you know, over 50 years of making and see that trajectory and that path is an interesting thing. But, yeah, basically it's like going into a sweet shop and doing a pick and mix of uh, what's nice after the rhubarb custard, a bit of licorice. It's like uh, it's quite a logical activity. How important is it to make
1: work for you that encourages people not only to engage with it but to engage with art more broadly as well to 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 view your work and think about it in relation to a wider world of art rather than viewing your work and being rejected by it or or puzzled by it or angered by it
4: yeah it's a difficult one because oh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because on one side you could make the argument that um, not everyone's interested in formula one racing But there's the same massive infrastructure and amount of money in that as there is contemporary art. But it doesn't mean we have to like it. Or, you know, everyone has different hobbies. So you could look at it like that and and be quite elitist about it and say, well, you can't understand it unless you spent 20 years studying visual language because it's an incredibly complex subject. But on the other side, I get more joy from a kid walking into a gallery and without the inhibitions or the the baggage of elitism that most adults have and just saying what they think. And what they think is always like a stroke of genius. And it's always the honesty and the truth of a child in a show and their reading that like, I mean, is the best reading in a way. So I think, I think artists good artists make the work approachable as well and whether they do that using humor or another device then i mean that's that's their their tactic but it needs it needs some soft edge to pull people in, a hook.
1: I know in Manchester last year, for example, you uh, exhibited work that was very playful. Uh, you know, eyes that followed you around the room, kind of uh, writing in toothpaste on walls. So, yeah. work that were very much that really kind of tapped into a, a perhaps a sense of play, a sense of adventure.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the tactic that I'm talking about in a way, That's and that's exhibition making, and exhibition making is different from art making. Um, but it's also having that palette of things, you know, having these animatronic eyes that are playful, but also having something that, you know, a series of black and white photographs that are kind of a, a bit too dry for everybody, but they have their place in the history of art as well, and being able to mix these things that I think makes a, a decent exhibition
1: you <sighs> We're speaking with visiting British artist Ryan Gander, whose exhibition, Read Only, is on at ACCA, opening on the 4th of June and running through until the 2nd of August. ACCA being the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, 111 Sturt Street, South Bank. You can find out more information at au. Ryan, while you're in Melbourne, are you going to be doing the traditional floor talks kind of uh, exhibit, hosting conversations? I am. I've got
4: a a crazy itinerary, which... uh started as soon as I got off the plane but I couldn't tell you what it is because the jet lag's uh, <laughs> too much to bear.
1: I'm sure if people go to the Acker website, ACCAonline.org.au, they can uh, find some of those details if they want to actually uh, kind of uh, encounter you in a little more detail talking about the work. The final question for you, um, when you visit different cities, how does that impact on your art? Uh, in two years' time, are you going to be back in the UK making a work, perhaps interpreting something or inspired by something that you've seen in Melbourne? What influence does visiting and exhibiting and and meeting other artists have on your own practice it's
4: it's exactly that usually i go to a place and people expect me to make work straight away about that visit but it always kicks in a couple of years later like you say so yeah watch this space i guess
1: we will indeed ryan gander thanks for joining us here at triple r You're tuned to Smart Arts here on Triple R. My next guest joins me in the studio. Artist Greg Creek is presenting an exhibition, a major solo exhibition at Shepparton Art Museum. Greg, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. Now, the exhibition is called The Desktop Drawings, um, and is interesting, I guess, in that it represents the way your practice has shifted um, because my understanding is that um, you used to be kind of working in oil paintings. I did,
5: that's right. And
1: kind of with bits of paper to blot up ink and so on, and gradually those bits of paper have become what were
5: throwaway. They've become the main game. Yeah. And that's what this... uh, uh, survey of desktop drawings is really about. Um, I think, like lots of artists and or painters working in their studio, you know, I would be doing lots of things in the studio and not necessarily a lot of time up painting on a on the canvas. Um, and I began to realize that the stuff that I was doing in the studio that wasn't on the canvas was interesting in its own right, and it was embodied in these desktop drawings. Um, How did
1: you be... Tell us about the moment when you began to realise that that shift was happening, because that's...
5: uh... (laughs) I should be honest, it wasn't me. I was painting a friend. I mean, I I had a a table, I had a, a, a draftsman's table that was covered in blotting paper, and it was there to protect the the, uh, drawing drafting table. And uh, it used to get coffee stains and scribbles and notes and telephone numbers and what I was going to have for lunch and all that sort of stuff. And these pieces of paper used to get thrown out. And a friend who I was painting uh, looked at them and pointed to them and said, you know, they're drawings. So really uh, I would order him. And it sort of changed really how I thought about the two parts of my practice. One was the making of sort of official works that were going to be seen, but the other was this research sort of thinking by doing component. And the desktop drawings sort of picked up that. So the exhibition that's going to be on at Shepparton Art Museum, we're talking
1: uh, quite a significant exhibition, the centrepiece of which is a 30-metre-long drawing. That's right. That's, that's significant. <laughs> that's, that's, what, how many dinner tables put together?
5: Uh, well, it, it, when I was making it, I sort of in my mind had it that I'd do about 50 centimetres a week, or thereabouts, or a, uh, a metre a week. So you can see how long that takes. So if you had, you know, one dinner party every week, there's 30, 30 dinner parties there. Yeah. So tell us about, did you
1: just have one long, large scroll uh, that you were working on, for example? I
5: did. I started with that, but the way that I worked on it was then to cut it up. So I worked on sections, worked on other sections, and later on in the whole process, and the drawing took about 10, 12 months to make, I began to cut or intercut sections. So bits that had become or been made quite late in the process were cut back into earlier parts. So it was almost like a filmic editing in some ways.
1: Why the decision to do that as opposed to well, presenting
5: the natural progression? I had done that before in early works where it was a continuous scroll. But there was always this question about, and I think it's a question for any artist, how do you bring the world into your art? And because I was a draftsman and making drawings out in the world, sketches and so on, it was a bit like, well, OK, these are happening in sketchbooks, how do they get into these works? So I began to copy my own drawings into the work and then cut them in or cut in the original drawings from sight. So this notion of the the body of the paper being something that could be uh, messed up and repositioned itself was an interesting... I do. and just looking,
1: for example, at a sample of uh, of the work that's on the Shepparton Art Museum website, people can go to sheppartonartmuseum.com.au, dot com I'm seeing leaves, I'm seeing flowers, I'm seeing faces, I'm seeing spiders, I'm seeing <laughs> what look like stains that have then been deliberately expanded and, and, and pulled that's out. That's right.
5: The, the process is a bit like the, the work. I mean, the, the way I work, it's a bit like the everyday doodle taken to the level of. Art, And so that includes everyday moments that are overlooked as well as more considered sorts of things. So as you pointed out, there might be botanical studies which fit completely in the history of, you know, fine art. But there also might just be, you know, copies of uh, dirt marks that appeared on the paper. And there's prints of my child's hands and a whole range of things. So it's that sort of mix between the everyday here and now, the small moments of life, let's say, mixed in with rather larger... Moments, even global sorts of moments, because other works that are in the show are not just about Melbourne; they're also about other cities as well. So, in terms
1: of the the notion of creating this work, I'm, I'm loving the the juxtaposition, I guess, between the organic kind of uh, process and then the the careful, considered, deliberate. How do we juxtapose this uh, this this piece with that piece? As you said, the, the cutting up and the reordering process as as, as a Deliberate and conscious part Mm. of the expression, as opposed to the accidental, the doodling, Mm. the the um, the 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 almost subconscious.
5: You know, it sort of Richard, it sort of came from that. I mean, I think most people who live in any city, and people who live in Melbourne will sort of uh, uh, sense this as well. I think you know, when I walk along a bit of the city, and this is what this drawing was about, I can be in one part of a street. And I can think about, I was here yesterday doing some shopping. And we can all walk just 10 metres, 15 metres down the same street and you can be flooded by memories that you may have had from 20 years before. So there's a funny sort of contrast between uh, space and deep memory and I think this process of the drawings that you're referring to sort of pick up some of that or allow me allow an artist to pick up that type of stuff.
1: Yeah, the layering of memory. Well, it
5: is a bit like that.
1: Yeah. Now, as well as this major 30-metre-long work that is being exhibited at Shepparton Art Museum, you're also exhibiting um, uh, works that are much newer, I understand. Right. 40 new drawings exploring...
5: Some uh, well, of the central it, well, themes of life, it, well, love, it, uh, love, love, death and politics. Indeed, and at the end, and Shepherdon. <laughs> so there's a sort of sense of, look, it's a survey, so the Melbourne desktop drawing has been bought into the Shepherdon Art Museum collection and be- around that we built this survey of works so that people who came to the show just didn't see, like, an isolated artwork, they saw a process and a practice. Uh, there are five works in the show. Uh, there's the uh, Melbourne desktop drawing. There's a, a large, long drawing, also 30 metres long. As a frieze that was done in Edinburgh, in Scotland, as part of the Edinburgh Festival. There is the set of 40 drawings, which are about Shepparton, that you've just mentioned, and there's another body of works, which are not about any place, and they're actually about the body itself, and they're eight tables of, with body prints. So, again, there's this sort of strange uh, confluence of body scale out to a, a much larger, you know, almost like a worldly scale in the works. So but there's it, a lot of looking to be done. There is indeed. So for uh, people who
1: are either in Shepparton or thinking about a, a, a trip up. And I wanted to, to pick up on that notion of uh, Melbournians perhaps going to visit the Shepparton uh, Art Museum because it's something that I've really become conscious of really over the last five years, particularly that Shepparton, Benalla, uh, Bendigo and Ballarat, all those regional uh, centres there, art museums and art galleries really have come into their own now. They really seems to be. A they
5: have and I think. I think cities have cottoned on to the fact that culture is a big industry, and it brings life. It be, brings vibrancy. Uh, it makes the regional areas connected to the city, and this is part of it. I grew up in Central uh, Victoria, came down to Melbourne like many kids do. Uh, it's happening in Shepparton now, uh, and this is a really terrific uh, uh, example. Of the regional areas, bringing people or trying to get people to come back. I mean, uh, Shepparton was talked about on Insight just during the week, and they talked about these very issues. So, it's a bit of a privilege for me, um, and uh, one that I hope people really enjoy and get up and have a look at.
1: Yeah. Um, have, how much time did you spend up in Shepparton to? create I've the been new going body? up and
5: back. You know because I'm only a couple of hours away uh, and it's not a big deal at all so I've been going up and back several times uh, this particular work, the Shepherd and Work is going to be made during the show so it unfolds so I'll be adding drawings uh, as we go so I at the moment on the opening on this Saturday, I think there's about fourteen drawings for the the Shepherd and work, but by the end of the ten week or two month period that the shows on, I think there might be forty drawings so there's a sort of idea there that narratives unfold they're not just presented in a complete way, but that we experience them and that perhaps the viewer's experience of these narratives changes over time. Which again is also a significant insight perhaps for the
1: casual viewer into the reality of making art. It's not just about the finished product, it is about the process.
5: Indeed, and it's about, you know, people, a lot of the, if you like, the content of art is made up by what people bring to it. And I think this work or these body of works encourage people to hear their own voice when they're looking at work and watching and looking at all the other voices if you like that are in the work. Greg Creek the
1: desktop drawings is having its official opening this Saturday the 30th of May following an artist talk at 3 p.m. Entry is free and the exhibition itself running at Shepparton Art Museum until the 9th of August. More information at www.sheppartonartmuseum.com.au Greg Creek
4: thank you for joining us.
1: I'm joined in the studio by my penultimate guest for the morning uh, From the UK, visual artist Chris Levine Who's out here for The Light in Winter The uh, celebration of light amidst the darkness at Federation Square Chris, welcome to Melbourne and indeed to Triple R
6: Hey, thanks So
1: you work with light as a medium, as an art form Why? What is it about light that so fascinates you?
6: Well, if you think of it, I mean, light really is fundamental to existence and the way everything works. So, you know, if we take it that the future hasn't happened, the past is, is over, then it's all about the present moment. It's all the phenomena of energy. You know, and Einstein says, we are compressed light. So what I'm doing with laser is, is looking and working with light in its purest form, single wavelengths of light that are basically fundamental to how it all works.
1: And, I mean, lasers are something that I think every child's imagination at some point goes, oh, lasers, cool. But the notion of amplified light, focused and amplified light, must be an intriguing tool to work with.
6: It is, and, and I feel you know, very lucky at this moment in time where it's, it's almost gone like a quantum. You know, When I first started playing with lasers, there were big devices with water cooling, three-phase power, big scientific instruments. You know, now, you know, running off a battery, you can do something that can be seen two, three miles away. So it opens up the scale of what you can do you know, as an art form. You think of it, you, know, you point a beam up into the sky, that beam of light. Just carries on going, 186,000 miles per second. That—that's a huge, you know, reaction of light. As a as a sculpture, it's you know, it's pretty universal scale.
1: Must be also though, then challenging to work with as well, to, in a sculptural sense.
6: Yeah, kind of, but it is, it's about the experience and it's surfing it really, you know, with the molecule of light in Federation Square, you know, the structure is, is, is a means to an end as with the technology and it's really in the experience. And if you can get people to kind of put their attention on, on laser light in a certain way, you know, it becomes a meditation. You know, you create the space between thoughts where you somehow you kind of recalibrate with what is, not what you want it to be, <laughs> but life and, and, re- and reality as it really is. And light can help you do that.
1: So the work that you are exhibiting for the light in winter at Federation Square, uh, Molecule of Light, where... Looking at a series of lasers converging on a central point at a, at a polished sphere and then bouncing every which way, which I imagine in the in the, the dark gloom of uh, midwinter is going to look rather spectacular. Tell us about the the commissioning process. What were you asked to? to what what were you presented with? What what was your brief?
6: Yeah, well, I, I was I was here a couple of years ago with Antina Johnsons, and you know the whole experience was really positive. And my friend Keith Courtney from CPS, you know, we were walking through Federation's. You know, it and it's a night after the show, you know, where there's a, and there's a lot of talk about the show and the and you know it's well you know what 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 would you do in Federation Square if in Melbourne? This would be the place to do it. What would you do? And so it it kind of sparked off there, but it's very much you know continuation. I'm doing a lot of work with the Eden Project in Cornwall in England, which are the, the they're the biggest greenhouses in the world. They're um, temperature control. One of them is a, a tropical biome. You've got a Mediterranean biome, but the whole thing is about sustainability and, and green awareness. You know the proud. The, the the planet right now is in a very fragile state, you know, and so the molecule of light is kind of drawing us into that sense of, you know, that we're a part of nature and not apart from it. We are nature, you know, and through light is a way of being able to connect with that um, in a way that's, you know, beyond all the noise of, of you know, modern life.
1: Now, I'm just thinking that I went to see that show with Anthony and the Johnsons, Fawn Lights at Melbourne Festival a cool. couple of years ago when you were out. So it must be very helpful for you then as an artist to, to have already been familiar with Federation Square, to have a, a sense of the physical properties of the space you were working in, as opposed to just being sent video or photographs of something else on the other side of the planet you'd not
6: visited before. Completely. I mean, and it is. It's a very distinctive space. You know, there's the a geometry of it that is, you know, so what you're talking about is the physical structure of it is you know that's the grid that you're working with so light something metaphysical light thing of energy but to, to do it in that bit very strong physical architectural geometric grid i just think you know heightens the experience you know and it's it's um it's something that's unfolding we're, we're, we've, we're, the structure's up now and we're programming through the night and it's it's evolving now it's taking on its own kind of life
1: Robin Archer, who's the artistic director of the Light in Winter at Federation Square, what did she have very strong and particular views as to what she wanted, or did she give you a fairly open brief in that regard?
6: Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it was about the experience, and probably I deliver within the experience was with, with you know, given quite a quite a free hand. And, you know, working with CPS, who produced the project for me, it's been a really good collaboration.
1: So uh, a freer hand than you had when you were making your light portrait of Queen Elizabeth II? <laughs>
6: very different experience, very different. <laughs> but, you know, it's all, it's all related. You know, the queen with her eyes shut, the meditation, lightness of being, the molecule of light, you know, light and consciousness. It's all, they're all facets for me, you know, in my work, in my exploration in light. You know, a portrait of the queen with her eyes shut, you know, is directly related to this molecule of light
1: one of the things that fascinates me about the notion of working with light is it's um something that is instantly familiar to everybody and and seems to be so often associated with liveliness the moment of now being in the present which strikes me as odd because the light we're most familiar with in some ways is sunlight and starlight starlight can be thousands of years old by the time it gets to us and even sunlight is it feels like it's in the now but it's still taken time to travel
6: exactly you know you look at the sun when it's just setting it's actually already Gone down. It's taken eight minutes for the light to get here, and it, the whole time factor of it, you know. And, and if you can get into like an expansive state, I mean, I think it's beautiful. You know, with the laser, and you can just lose yourself into it, you know. And the fact that we are all standing on a big sphere. It's not. At, it's not as if deep space is out there. We are standing in the middle of deep space, uh, you know. And it's, you can bring people into that kind of realization. Just, just even just for a moment, it's an expansive state. Something recalibrated. Something, your bandwidth of perception somehow just, for a moment, just, you know, blips outwards, you know, and and that's because you're questioning what's real. And actually, what is real is an amazing, wondrous phenomenon that's unfolding. But, you know, we we get lost in the immediacy of our daily lives and modern noise but it's, if we can break from that you know, we are, you know, it's a universal thing that's going on and it's pretty amazing It's
1: one of the things that's been really fascinating about the Light in Winter program over the the last eight years this is going to be its ninth year, being able to sit in Federation Square and just stop for a moment, just to pause and contemplate and look at the works that are exhibited Um, and to to look at other people looking at the works, which is something I always enjoy as well, completely to, to that rare moment of contemplation or meditation on art in a public space in that break in the in the busy nature of our lives
6: and where you're connected where you know and you can you can share that experience with it and it's just and it is when your mind stops and then when your mind stops then the heart comes into effect you know and the heart that's where the real intelligence is it's not through our it's our minds it's, it's heart consciousness and through meditation you know we can get in touch with that
1: now, the light in winter for 2015 at Federation Square is running from the 1st until the 21st of June, nightly from 5.30pm. Everything is free. There's a range of exhibitions and conversations happening, and it's culminating in the uh, winter solstice celebration, uh, a night of music, food, performance, and, of course, light on the 21st. And... Uh, Chris Levine's work, Molecule of Light, will be on show for the full duration of The Light in Winter. If people were to sneak into Fed Square tonight at, I don't know, midnight, would they be able to see the work being tweaked and tested?
6: Well, it's it's like it's this thing is manifesting now, so we're tweaking the dials, and the thing is revealing itself. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's and it's looking quite interesting.
1: Well, it would be fun to then go and go back night after night and see the fine tuning process and see the final event. I'm certainly looking forward to seeing molecule of light myself, Chris, when it is officially uh, unveiled for us all on the first of June. Many thanks for joining us here at Triple R.
6: Thank you.
7: Hello. Ah, Etc. Yeah, that's a warm welcome. Thank you, Richard. How's it going? Yeah, good. Well, I'm short of breath. I ran a bit in order to get here. Well, I'm glad you made it. Yes. Yes.
1: In just a minute of time. And I'm guessing that uh, you, like many other Melbourne cinephiles, are somewhat excited that the first sneak peek of the Melbourne International Film Festival programme was released yesterday.
7: Yeah, very excited. Was it yesterday? Maybe day before? It's recently, very recently. You're right. Day before Tuesday. Yes, yes, yes. And I know you wasted no time in buying possibly the one ticket, uh, well, the, a ticket for the one ticketed event presently uh, available for purchase. Or were there actually one or two others that they've opened up? For? Uh, seating for already. That's a good
1: question. I don't know. Uh, yes, the film in question is the uh, centrepiece presentation of Melbourne International Film Festival this year, the Melbourne premiere of Holding and the Man.
7: Now you have a great deal of uh, a sense of anticipation for this. I know you have a lot of affection for the play.
1: Well, I have a lot of affection for the play by Tommy Murphy uh, who has also written the screenplay for this film. Uh, and I have a lot of affection for the memoir on which it's based, the memoir by Timothy, Timothy Conagrave, which is a Great Australian love story. It's about him being at high school and meeting the, the, the love of his life, the captain of the, f- the school football team, and then falling in love and being together for 15 odd years. It ends badly because this is a memoir about the early years of the AIDS crisis, but it's a passionately written book. Um, there was an attempt, an earlier attempt back in the noughties to adapt it for the screen, which, uh, did not come about. Uh, so uh, the fact that now finally we have a film version screening at MIF, I'm very excited. And, and yes, I went out and immediately purchased a ticket.
7: Yeah, actually, it's just um, reminding me that uh, one of the feature films they've announced is a New Zealand film concerning r- rugby. And I didn't read much of the synopsis there, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of a queer, at least undercurrent to that, because rugby in and of itself is only interesting to a point, in my opinion, uh, look, a well-made, as a documentary subject. Uh, a well-made film
1: about rugby could be in- Fascinating that the good documentaries manage to... Rise above Love. pedestrian They're...
7: source material. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So a documentary about rugby has also been announced. I hadn't seen that. Is that
7: a docker? I think it is a docker. Or a, yeah. Docker or a feature? a Kiwi, Kiwi feature.
1: Ah, a The feature. Ground We Won yes. from New Zealand. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So Miff have released, um, essentially teasers, a mini, pa- a mini program. It's basically saying here are four, four or five films from each package from features, shorts, documentaries. Um, and there's an Australian feature I'm particularly excited to see. Do tell. Downriver, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, a new film, the the making of which I've been following for a little while. I, uh, uh, the director in question has made a couple of shorts that I've really, really enjoyed. So uh, yeah, it's, it's just kind of nice to see... I don't know, all of the all of the, the different teasers and tastes. So Down River uh, is the, the debut feature film from uh, Grant Schlacuna who had an ah, award-winning yeah. film at uh, Queer Film Festival a couple of years ago. And this is indeed in some ways a, 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 a sequel or a, or a postscript to the events of that short. So
7: Okay. Well, the film that most has me tantalised is the new film from... Uh, Winnipeg's finest, Guy Madden um, with help from uh, a little known filmmaker named Evan Johnson The Forbidden Room in which the plots of lost movies are dredged up, uh, movies from the early days of cinema, from the silent era and from the, the really primitive cinema age, reimagined as short stories with a, an, a cast of uh, European stars of the art house cinema and no small amount of ectoplasm. And I think quite a bit of this material might originally have been generated in uh, an extraordinary period Madden spent, um, embedded within uh, Centre Pompidou where each day for uh, I think a few weeks he was conducting seances to uh, bring to life the spirit of lost films and and effectively enact them there and then on the spot sometimes with people who had some sort of familial connection with the uh, with the film so hence we get people like Geraldine Chaplin uh, in the cast of The Forbidden Room as well as I mean Udo Kier in several roles that's already Uh, Well, more than enough. I love Guy Madden's films, and this just sounds like a manna from heaven to the likes of me.
1: Now, I think there's there's actually announced quite a few features already. Uh, Most categories, they seem to only announce four to six films. But in the features, there's uh, a lot of films. Uh, A new Paul Cox feature, for Mm -hmm. example, the... uh, um, What's a good way to describe Paul Cox, the Australian filmmaker?
7: An iconoclast. Um, He's not to everyone's taste, but he's been a a fairly prolific filmmaker over many a long year now with a real, uh, I hesitate to say, European sensibility, but it's certainly not a a, a typically Australian one. Um, I don't know that much about his new film other than that I've seen that David Wenham is involved. What, what have you unearthed, uh, It's
1: been described as highly autobiographical with a sumptuous aesthetic and uh, autobiographical. <laughs> Bless you. Excuse me. Bless you. Um, because Paul Cox had a liver transplant not that long ago. Right. And the film is about a man uh, who is diagnosed with cancer of the liver.
7: Curiously, Paul Cox appears in an early Guy Madden film in the cast. Uh, He's in Careful, I'm pretty sure I remember that correctly. Just an odd link that just emerged in the moment there. Uh, There's a new film from Jafar Panahi, the extraordinary Iranian director who has been prohibited from making films for quite a few years now and nonetheless has managed somehow to smuggle three films ingeniously out of the country, having even more ingeniously made them in Iran in the first place. So his new film, Tehran Taxi, features the director himself as a cab driver uh, with a camera running in the cab throughout... And um, typical of his films, uh, blurring the lines between uh, contrived uh, events and and, um, scripted scenes as well as actual documentary uh, events just captured camera and somehow again smuggled out the camera I mean, this, the spirit of this man is unfailingly inspiring to me
1: and in terms of stories being smuggled out from uh under the noses of harsh regimes uh nowhere line voices from Manus island is a film that i'm i'll be intrigued to see it's uh in the shorts program uh, it's uh, an animation recorded interviews with uh, two uh refugees detained on the manis island processing center brought to life with animation mm-hmm. and Also, an animation in the shorts package, a brand new film from Adam Elliott.
7: Ah, yes, probably a bit less harrowing. Uh, Probably. One would imagine. Knowing Adam's subjects
1: and uh, the, the dark nature of his. Yeah,
7: blackly humorous, at least. Yes.
1: Um, so a new claimation about a Parisian taxidermist who accidentally travels to Australia with his pet duck yeah. called Ernie Biscuit. So that will be lovely to see.
7: Yeah, and back within the realm of the truly harrowing, Joshua Oppenheimer has a follow-up to the act of killing that uh, absolutely extraordinary um, quasi-documentary uh, revisiting of the 1965 Indonesian genocides. Um, a film in which the, uh, some of the perpetrators of, of atrocities, unspeakable atrocities, reenact the things they did way back when sort of viewed through a cinephilic lens. They were all mad film nuts. It was a, a film that brought cinephilia and atrocities to, into a, a very uncomfortable viewing experience, a weird collision there that was extremely discomforting. And this follow-up uh, I've already heard wonderful things about on the festival circuit, and this time it's more looking at the events... From the 60s in Indonesia, from the perspective of the victim. So, um, uh, that's unmissable in my book, but also it's going to be quite a downer. And if I see another film that day, I'd be very surprised. It'd be exhausting. <laughs>
1: We are talking about First Glance, which is the uh, sneak peek, well, not so sneak because they've widely publicised it, that uh, Melbourne International Film Festival released earlier in the week, uh, uh, a bit of a snapshot of everything that's on across the festival. Uh, One of the other special events that they are presenting at the festival is a retrospect of uh, the the career of David Golpilel.
7: Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, They haven't announced all the titles yet. I know there's a new documentary there called Another Country which I believe probably riffs on Charlie's country. Uh, But I'm hoping that this will be quite a thorough retrospective and there might be films like Walkabout amongst them. I can only hope.
1: I would hope so. They say they are screening many of Gulpilil's most iconic movies alongside some of his less well-known little scene gems. And there's also going to be a special in-conversation event with Margaret Pomeranz on Saturday, the 1st of August, 4.30pm in the Festival Lounge. That will be one of those days where I forget something is on and try and go to the Festival Lounge for a drink and I'm no ticketed event go away but uh, in conversation with Margaret Pomerantz that should hopefully be a revealing conversation.
7: What's really piqued my interest is not a film per se but a package of 10 specially created 35mm short films in a program called Vertical Cinema in which the uh, conventional aspect ratio of uh, cinema projection is spun 90 degrees, Uh, could be clockwise, could be counterclockwise, it's not clear. It's... um, Something I've, I've actually been thinking about this sort of thing for a little while. We're, we're quite the cinema is quite a high bound medium. It, it, there's not a lot of play with aspect ratio these days. Uh, Xavier Dolan's recent film Mummy had a, a bit of fun with it mid film, but generally we are pretty used now to sort of 16 to nine. Uh, aspect ratios mimicking what we basically have in our homes now um, but this this really interests me I'm hoping there are some people that uh, who have been commissioned for the, these shorts have actually really made use of that uh, really interesting um, aspect ratio it's sort of just a more sort of a skyscraper model rather than a landscape and I'm very intrigued I don't know what venue that will be in Will it be in the Comedy Theatre, which has been announced as a venue for MIF for the first time? Uh, That has me very intrigued, while the capital has been jettisoned, which makes me a little sad, though I know it is a troublesome beast. It is, it is. So, Melbourne International Film Festival
1: on from the 30th of July until the 16th of August. More details about the first glance program at miff.com.au
7: And it behooves me as we sort of wind this segment up Richard just to uh, shout out a few hurrahs for the reopening of the Astor on Sunday week June the 7th and I know that you'll have the new general manager Zach Hepburn in on the show next week I'm, yeah. yeah, to talk um, I dare say, at length about all this but I'm, I'm tremendously pleased that the um, since the palace folk have taken over the Astor business um, that it looks looks very much to be conforming to the wonderful repertory programming model of George Florence and company of many, many years standing. And it's uh, I think it's even quite a statement on that very first day of its reopening, back-to-back, back, a brilliant Howard Hawks film from 1939, Only Angels Have Wings to Start Off, and a 4K digital... Presentation followed by Judy Garland, James Mason and A Star Is Born, John Huston's The Misfits and Scorsese's The Taxi Driver that very evening. I think that is a wonderful statement there. Never mind that the following day, a public holiday kicks off with Singing in the Rain and The Searchers. So um, this is exciting. There are great double bills coming up. An Antonioni double on 35mm film blow up in Zabriskie Point later in June. Um some Billy Wilder classics, including some noir in the form of Double Indemnity.
6: Excellent.
7: Excellent. Last weekend, I see The Big Sleep in the Maltese Falcon, Doubled. And um Sooner, actually, Dazed and Confused and Fast Times at Ridgemont High as a double bill. This is great. I'm pretty well pleased as punch and really look forward to getting reacquainted with my, uh, with the beloved Astor Theatre, kind of pronto-ish, really. Excellent. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, we will talk
1: to, uh, I will talk anyway, uh, to Zach Hepburn in more detail about the ASTOR and his uh, management of it next week. Sirius Howard, thank you for joining us. It's been my distinct pleasure, Richard. We will catch you in a fortnight's time. And uh, it's time for me to go as well. Uh, Chris, Gill coming up. Uh, At midday with Get Down, I'm going to leave you with a track by Orb Weavers, uh, well, The Orb Weavers from their first album, Graphite and Diamonds, released back in 2009. This is the track Up to Your Neck, and I'll catch you next Thursday between 9am and midday.
0: Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.